Welcome to our December 2023 Empower Women podcast episode, Nine Things You Can Do Now to Make Life Easier for Your Loved Ones After You're Gone, a probate attorney's perspective on how to simplify your life. This month, we were joined by Liz O'Neill, an attorney at Constant Law Group. In this episode, Liz talked about what happens after someone passes and offered insights on how to avoid common pitfalls that can complicate or lengthen the probate process. Enjoy. And we're super, super, super excited to have Liz speak here. She has spoken for us before. Um, She's a great friend of the firm and has amazing experience in specializing in estate planning and administration. She's had uh, a lot of experience in the actual court systems and attorney general's office. So she kind of knows how it works on both sides which I love because she can speak to us about what what really to expect um, in these you know stressful times of life. So um, I'll kick it off to her and let her just give a little bit about her and then um, we can hear about all of the things that we can do now to make life a little bit easier after uh, a loved one has passed. So go ahead, Liz, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Christine. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you all for being here. So. Uh... Thank you, Lexington Wealth Management, for this Empower Women series. I have had the pleasure of speaking here in the past, and um, it's nice to be back. So welcome to all. Um, I am a trust and estates attorney, a probate. Um, I'm based in Lexington, a constant law group. Um, and last year, I gave a sort of basics of estate planning, you know, what are trusts and how do they work? And um, always happy to chat on that. But I thought this year, um, I would try to bring in some real practical tips. Uh, Many of you may already have an estate plan, many of you are thinking about it, but there are some things that I've learned from the lens that I carry, so the the work that I do, especially on the administration after someone dies, um, that I just think are more practical in nature, um, could be helpful to you um, either just for your own planning, but also helpful to those of you here who may have uh, elderly parents and sort of helping them and thinking through those potential small small things that become big things um, and especially frustrating to those who've gone to the trouble of of, of uh, working with an attorney and crafting an estate plan and maybe one of these two little things slips through the cracks and they trigger a probate or they trigger some extra work for your for your family that you are your lo- loved ones that you were trying to avoid um a little bit about me um I um I uh, lived in Lexington for many years, brought up my family here, um, started working um, as a lawyer, though, later in life. So I have a little bit of a different path to becoming a lawyer. I uh, I, I went to law school in my my mid-40s and um, after a divorce, and so I had to recreate myself. So I do come at this work um, with, with a few really important parts of, of how I approach it. One is I, you know, oh, I should have mentioned I'm also a mother of four children between that sort of background. I'm just a very practical person by nature. So to me, whenever I take time out of my day to attend a webinar or or, or do something like y'all are doing right now, I love it when I come away with one or two things I can do right away, one or two practical ideas. So when I was when I was um, thinking about today's chat, I really hope that's my goal. And my goal is that you will you come away with a couple ideas, things you might not have known about before that will help you or your family. Um, we're going to do a brief overview of what is probate. 
Uh, many people have heard the word. Many, some people have have had to deal with it when they've dealt with the loss of a loved one. Um, but we'll we'll talk a little bit about what it is so that you have that basic understanding because it can be confusing. And I think sometimes it is used or it's thought of as sort of the big bad wolf, like oh, avoid probate at all costs. And 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 I'll explain kind of what it is, uh, maybe demystify uh, it a little bit. Um, and then we're going to go through nine things, nine nine things that you can do now if you haven't already done them. Uh, that could help avoid triggering a probate um, un unintentionally. Uh, then we'll spend just a very brief amount of time on sort of, sort of less practical ideas, just more, more thoughtful ideas to consider if you haven't already. And then we'll sum it up and, and finish if anyone has questions that they didn't ask um, during our time together. What is probate? So after somebody dies, there's a court process called probate. And its real purpose is to see that the person who died, the decedent's debts and obligations are paid, and that clear title passes onto their heirs if they didn't have a will or their devisees if they did have a will. So people either die with or without a will, and under the law, those are the terms that are being used there. And depending on what you own in your own name, that process could be easy, hard, sort of complicated, straightforward, take a lot of time, or be quick. And sometimes it can even be avoided all altogether. Um, so what is it? So anything you own individually is part of what's called your estate. And for everything in your estate, the court wants to make sure it goes to the right person or persons. So probate is that court process after someone passes. And that really is, is addresses anything that, again, is in your individual name. So that means it isn't in a trust, it isn't jointly owned, and it doesn't have a beneficiary. Um, so those, if something is in a trust, if it's jointly owned or it has a beneficiary, it's not going to go through the probate process at all. So probate is only dealing with things that are just in your name. And it, what it does is it appoints a personal representative. For many of us who are my generation, we, we, we know that more as an executor. Um, some states may still use that language, but in Massachusetts, um, they adopted the Uniform Probate Code in 2012, and we use the language personal representative that's in charge of distributing the assets of the estate. So the probate process can take time, What that and that can be difficult if your loved ones are in need of, you know, pay, if, you're, if you have to pay something off or pay for a funeral. Um, it's public. Uh, which means that, you know, a, a, a different a, a different webinar, if we had time, we would we could jump on and I could just show you, you can even Google it. Um, it's a public process. Anything that's on the, the, in the probate court relative to an estate administration, you can, you can click and find someone's will. So it's very public. Um, and it, there are different levels of it, and that can be limited in terms of the, what's involved. Um, and those can be avoided to a large extent by actions people take um, during their lifetime. That's just a little taste of what is probate. And we're gonna just move on to the nine things that you can do now. And I wanna mention again that um, these are uh, also ideas for those of you with aging parents that you can consider um, just talking to them about if they haven't already done that. Um, so number nine. Checking your beneficiary designations on your accounts. So a lot of people have already done this. And so this is just gonna be a quick reminder. Um, retirement accounts are probably the most obvious example of this. 
And I always mention um, to people is to make sure that you've got all your retirement accounts um, with a beneficiary designation. Where this sometimes comes up is if there's a retirement account that someone got in their, you know, that their first job or when they're 20 or in their 30s, and it's still out there, it still exists. And when we were in our 20s and 30s and we got that retirement account and our benefits meeting on our first day of work or whenever that kicked in for you, you may or may not have even added a beneficiary. So double check your retirement accounts that you have and just make sure that a beneficiary is listed. Um, annuities, same thing, only a little different in that some annuities don't give an option to have a beneficiary, some do. You wanna just check that to see if you can add a beneficiary to go ahead and do that. Pensions also might or might not have that as an option. Some pensions do, some pensions just stop after when someone dies, but you wanna check to see if there's a possibility of adding a beneficiary that you, you wanna do so. Investment accounts that aren't already jointly owned or in a trust can have a beneficiary. And that's something to look into with your advisor. Um, again, instead of just only having it in your name, you can add a beneficiary. It's called the TOD or a transfer on death. Now, some of you may already have some estate planning in place where that your investment account is in, owned by your trust. So if something is already in a trust, you don't need to worry about the beneficiary designation. Once it's in a trust, that account, will, that, that, that asset is going to follow the rules of your trust. I'm just mentioning this again for anything that might be in your individual name and not either jointly owned. Um, residential refunds, you might be wondering, what is she talking about with this? Well, some people at certain stages in their life um, may be in an assisted living type um, living arrangement. And sometimes those um, agreements or contracts that people sign include uh, an initial investment up front, and that's going to be refunded upon their death. Um, sometimes that's a very large refund. Sometimes it, it doesn't really matter the, the size of it actually for this point. The, ma the main point is many of these places allow for you to name the payee of that refund. For folks who don't think about it, what happens is it's payable to the estate of the decedent. And that triggers a probate right away. In order to cash that check, someone has to be appointed by the probate court to be a personal representative. So for those in an assisted living environment where you have that type of, there's going to be a refund potentially down the road, take a look, talk to the person at your facility, see if you can add a beneficiary. You can add, if you have a trust, you can add your trust. If you want to leave it to a, a spouse, child, however you want to do it. But by leaving it blank, the refund will still be paid, but it'll be paid to your estate. And again, in order to to, to cash that check, uh, there'll need to be a probate. And even, and last but not least, even you know, bank accounts. Um, there are a couple different ways that your bank account, and again, this is for bank accounts that are not already titled to a trust. You can add a joint owner and you can also add a beneficiary and not, not folks don't always know that. In this case, it would be called a payable on death beneficiary. And for a bank account that has a beneficiary, again, it won't go through probate. It'll pay out to whoever you name as your beneficiary. Or, of course, consider having just a joint owner, and then it would go to the, the surviving owner. Okay. Someone, uh, someone asked a question if a beneficiary can be a foreign national living outside the U.S. 
Ooh, that is a great question. And that triggers some different tax um, issues. And whoever asked that question, I can follow up with you separately. Um, the, I mean, the, the short answer is you can name whoever you want, but there are tax issues involved with anything to do with international. Um, and sometimes it's also dependent on the country. Um, so it's not, there's not an easy, quick answer to that one, but I'm more than happy to, 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 you know, explore that off at later um, time. So if they want to put their name and contact information in the chat. And um, one, I just wanted to share one quick scary story um, as an advisor here. Unfortunately, we had a client who didn't check their beneficiaries and passed away and the retirement account still had an ex-spouse name. Yep. And so there was really nothing that anyone could do to undo that once they passed. And so the ex-spouse ended up with the retirement assets. It's a great point. And it's sort of, it's, it's, um, it's a really important point. The retirement company, whoever this custodian, they're going to go by what is listed uh, as the beneficiary designation. They, they are not going to listen to, oh, I meant to change that or update that. That's also true for life insurance policies. That also comes up for life insurance policies um, when folks don't update them, especially in the context of a divorce. So great, great, great um, point, Christine. Thanks for, for adding that. Um, okay, moving on to number eight. Ah, safety deposit box. Um, so this is one of the ironies of, of, of the work that I do sometimes is that someone's gone to the trouble to get a safety deposit box to keep their important documents, perhaps maybe some a valuable piece of jewelry, um, and then they pass away. If 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 that safety deposit box is not in the trust or if there doesn't have a joint owner, the bank will take very good care of it and not allow anyone to access it um, until someone's appointed a personal representative of the estate. So I run, and, and it has happened, believe it or not, and you probably can believe it, that folks will put their will in a safety deposit box and you actually need the will to have a simpler probate to get to the safety deposit. So it defeats the entire purpose. So you can add a joint owner to a safety deposit box at most institutions. You can also put it in a trust at most places. So just consider how your safe, if you have one or your parents have one, consider how the safety deposit box is owned and who has access to it. Check credit report. So this is something that um, sometimes will come up um, for folks um, that may or may not remember what accounts they have open uh, and what accounts that are that that any 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 credit cards that you might have open, any accounts you might still have open. This is a great thing for those of you to do if you have, um, especially if you have elderly parents. It's really easy to access a credit report. You just write to the three credit bureaus, get your get a credit report. Just make sure you know. First of all, it also can show up if there's anything that doesn't belong there if there's any um, um, mistakes, and sometimes you'll, you will find mistakes, um, it can be really valuable to get a sense of what it is that's in your name and what's owned. So you can either close an account if you need to, or just be remember that you have certain things open. I know that might sound funny because maybe all of you on this webinar are super organized and remember all this, but for those of us that have been, you know, once you've been around for a number of decades, sometimes there can be something. And most often those uh, dormant accounts will have gone to abandoned property. Um, but every once in a while, um, the, the bank may not turn it over to abandoned property. 
And so um, it's good to just check your credit report from time to time just to see what's on there to correct any in, in, you know anything that's mis any mistakes, um, but also to be aware of um, what's on there. I you know where this came up, um, you know sometimes this comes up, and I'll tell you a story about an administration that we're working on right now. Uh, a man in seventies died unexpectedly. One surviving family member, his brother. Um, the the decedent died without a will, and the brothers had a fine relationship, but they weren't that close. Um, they didn't really know that much about each other's affairs, and now the brother um, is going through and trying to get through the um, get through the administration. And and we're you know as part of our work um, requesting the credit reports just to get a sense of what is it that this person who passed, what did they own, where did they have accounts. All of that's listed on a credit report. So it's a good thing to do to check in from time to time um, uh, to make sure there isn't an account out there in your name that you may, may have fallen off your, your radar. Number six, if you have out-of-state property, consider the way the deed is titled. So if you're living in Massachusetts, which maybe some of you live in New Hampshire and are on this, and maybe some of you live in other states, but wherever you're domiciled, so I live in Massachusetts, so when I die, if I'm still living in the same house, I'll be considered domiciled in Massachusetts. And um, But if I own property in New Hampshire or Maine, that's a dream of mine, um, and I own that in my own name in that other state, even if I've done everything right in Massachusetts, even if I have you know, a full estate plan and a trust and all my things are titled properly, the fact that I have that out-of-state property and it's not in a trust or it's not jointly owned, it's gonna trigger what's called an ancillary probate in that other state. So this comes up for folks and they don't realize it. Um, it comes up when uh, there is that property out-of-state and they're hoping that you know, whatever they do in Massachusetts will cover the, the, the legal requirements of that property and the passing that title onto their heirs in the other state. And it, and it just doesn't. Um, and, it, and uh, you know, there's a, um, another story, a client that we're working with, uh, the decedent died in New Jersey, owning a um, one-week timeshare in, um, in Dennisport. And um, in order to get the, the, his sister appointed in Massachusetts in order to her to have her be able to wrangle and change the deed over um, is probably costing more than the timeshare might be even worth. Um, but they didn't want to leave it just out there. So if you own out-of-state property, look into the way it's, the deed is titled. You can always consult an attorney if it's in your own name or it might be jointly owned about just making sure you understand what would happen if you die owning that and what what would be involved in, in, in any what's again called an ancillary probate, which is a, a probate that's in another state. OK, it can be a very um, difficult process for families to navigate if it hasn't been considered. Number five. OK, I mentioned I said a four four. I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier um, when I was talking about credit reports. It's a good idea and can actually be kind of fun, it's kind of like for any of you who like to do any little treasure hunting, to check for abandoned property um, in any state where you've lived. The example here in Massachusetts is fine mass money. And I think they're pretty good 
the Secretary of State's pretty good at um, advertising this. And if you haven't done it yet, I definitely recommend that you do. You'll be surprised. Um, and do it also for your children. Um, I, I discovered that that small starter passbook savings account that I had opened up for my son, Harry, when he was in kindergarten, um, you know, went dormant. We completely forgot it was existed and it was turned over to to this to this to of the abandoned property in Massachusetts. And I don't think there's a lot of money in there, but it was his life savings at the time. So um, he has to go through the process. It's not difficult to um, to to claim to file a claim and get that out of abandoned property. But if you haven't done it or it hasn't been and then someone dies, then you the person has to get appointed as that personal representative to go through probate and get to the um, to the act to get the asset claimed and then distributed on to the person's heirs. Um, and it's interesting, you know, when this has come up before uh, for clients that I've been working with, um, you're able to go on. And, and again, you can even before becoming personal representative, you can go on and see if there's abandoned property in any state where someone may have lived. Um, but you can't get any more information about what is the value um, until you actually properly submit a claim. But it's been my experience that even if it looks like it's only a small amount of money, um, there's often a, a, a real um, interest in the parties to, to, to try to find out what it is. Um, and almost like psychologically, they don't want to just leave anything in abandoned property that their, their parent might have owned. So go through the process, check abandoned property and any state where you have lived, um, it's really simple to do it. Every state has a website where you can look for abandoned property. I think Florida's is like my treasure hunter. You know, interesting story. We had a client who um, he was helping uh, administer his aunt's estate. And he had got a, a letter from a, a company in Chicago that said, um, we're sorry for your loss. We realize that your aunt, and naming her name, um, had abandoned property in in Florida. You know, would you like us to get it for you? And they were going to take half half of what they found. And he almost said yes. Uh, um, but we intervened and we said, you know, let us check that for you. And it turned out to be eleven thousand um, dollars, which was a great find um, for the family. Um, and it was nice that he was able to keep eleven all eleven thousand dollars of it instead of half to this third party company that. Um, was was mining that data. So I think everyone gets the point. Check check abandoned property in any state or jurisdiction where you may have lived, and um, take care of that before before uh, you pass on and have it trigger a probate. Somebody asked a question, um, Winifred, and it said most of these are not held very long. Are they? I'm assuming you mean they're not held long in the abandoned property? I guess I'm not clear on the question. No, I, I, I'm not sure either. So usually, first of all, things will go to abandoned property. I think in Massachusetts, if, if they've been dormant for six years, yeah. but then they sit in, I, I don't know how long they sit in abandoned property. That's a good question. Um, but I, I, it is- No, I mean, I know personally I've checked um, and found an account that was my mom's that was like, you know, over 15 or almost yeah. 20 years. So yeah. I think it sits there for a long time. Okay. Great question. Number four. 
Okay, so this is a, this is something that is also can be very helpful to know. Um, so in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, for real estate, for deeds specifically, there are two systems that are parallel. And you didn't, if you own property, you didn't get to pick if your house is recorded land or registered land. This was already done for you when the plot of land was um, zoned or recorded as a property within the Commonwealth when it was first developed. Don't ask me why something's recorded or something's registered land. That's a great question for probably another day. But I can tell you that uh, most of the land is recorded. The vast majority of your of deeds are recorded with the Registry of Deeds. There's though a separate system called registered land that folks don't even really realize it. And you, it's such a subtle detail on a deed, but it makes a big difference if your house is in registered land and if it's not in a trust. What happens is with everything that is in the registered land system, is handled or over, the oversight is by the land court in Massachusetts. There's one land court, it's in Boston, and they handle all the different matters to do with registered land. One of which is getting a subsequent title. So say someone dies owning property um, that's registered land. And in their will, they said, I want my house to go to my son. And now the son is administering the estate. He, he also might be the personal representative. And now he's gone through probate and he's got appointed. Oh, by the way, this comment, by the way, is not as much about triggering probate. It's slightly an adjacent comment that I wanted to pass along. This has more to do that if you have registered, if your property in the Commonwealth is registered land, and you don't do anything about it while you're on this planet by um, doing some planning to get a, what's called a certificate of title subsequent. So the certificate of title is the way that properties are registered with the land court. And when you want get to get a new one issued, it can take up to two years for that process to happen, mainly because the land court is just one land court and there's a lot of, of stuff that they manage there. And these, these requests for a certificate of title subsequent usually fall to the bottom of the pile of all the different matters that they're dealing with. To give you a, to follow up on that timeshare story, the Dennisport timeshare that cost a lot of money to get the ancillary probate, that was actually registered land. Believe it or not, it was timeshares can either be deeded um, or they're a contract. It just depends on the, the, the place that has the timeshare. This happened to be a deeded timeshare and worse, it happened to be registered land. It took 18 months of, 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 of pestering the land court to get them to actually act on the, the request they finally have. Um, but that family was you know, tied up for a long time, uh, first having to go through the probate to deal with it and then having to deal with the land court. So this is something that would be on your deed. If you have your deed, you can look at it. And if you see language at the, the end that says for reference, see certificate of title filed with, it might be the, the Middlesex South Division of the Land Court. Um, that's, a, that's a trigger that it's registered land. And if you don't have a trust, I suggest you think about or talk to an advisor or counselor about, about that. And it can just really save time and aggravation for your family, um, you know, after you after you go on uh, after you die.
What if it's held in an LLC versus a trust? That also is helpful. Okay. Yep. Good question. Uh, number three. All right. Consider your car. Ownership of a car by a deceased person can trigger also probate. And this is actually one of the most common uh, scenarios where uh, somebody has done all the right things. They've done all the planning. They've got their affairs in order. They've got their beneficiary designations. They've got their, they might have a trust and they've titled their property to the trust. Um, and they've taken care of everything. The joint owners for whatever else they might have a safety deposit box, all set. They have a car. And um, um, now, first of all, if they're married, when they pass on, it immediately uh, can be, not immediately, but very simply, it can be transferred to a surviving spouse. So where the car becomes an issue is when there isn't, um, it, the person isn't married or that they were married and a widowed and, and they, they don't have a surviving spouse. So this often, what happens is right now in the registry of motor vehicles in Massachusetts, there isn't a, a function to add a beneficiary onto a certificate of title. In other states, there's, that's starting to happen, and I hope it comes to Massachusetts. It would be kind of a simple thing because uh, that would enable someone to add, I want my car to go to my nephew or whatever you may want it to go to or perhaps donate it. But right now, um, that someone dies owning a, a car, again, and they're not married, um, it would trigger a probate to get someone appointed just to transfer that title onto cars for kids or to that nephew or wherever that may go, CarMax to sell it. So there are different strategies that folks use. Um, and, 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 you know, a few of them are, 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 are stuff that from a lawyer's perspective, I, I can't recommend doing because they have to do with having someone sign a certificate of title, but while they're still owning and driving the car, which, you know, is, 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 is not legal to do, but I know folks to do that. I know folks that when they're coming to an end of life, someone is you know passing on or close to passing on, they still may have that car in the driveway. At that time, if they know that person is not gonna be driving anymore, they will have someone sign over the certificate of title to another person. Um, it's, it's really up to you how you wanna handle it or maybe sell the car before the person passes on. But when, when someone passes and they still own a car and the certificate of titles in their name, that will trigger um, a probate. Now it might be the, the lowest level probate called the voluntary administration, which is not that involved, doesn't have a publication, isn't quite um, as expensive or time consuming. Um, but it's just, again, sort of just be aware of this. If your aging parent still has a car, maybe they're not driving it anymore, um, you know, think about, consult with an advisor about what to do about that. Now it's hard because cars really represent freedom. They represent a lot of things to um, all of us. Uh, so, you know, selling a car, or taking care of a car before someone has died can be very upsetting. And so I'm not suggesting that. I just want to make sure people are aware of these issues and can consider them and plan around them if they wish to. Okay. Number two, we're getting there. Hope everyone's doing well. Passwords. Okay. This is kind of the tricky world of like digi digital assets and online accounts. And specifically, it's tricky for those of us who live in the Commonwealth. And I'll tell you why. As of today, I think we're the only state, there might be Arkansas and Massachusetts, but I actually think Massachusetts might be the only state that hasn't passed sort of a uniform digital assets um, act. It's called RUFADA. And it's the longest acronym um, that I've ever seen. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to 
um, get all the letters right. But basically, there is legislation pending in Massachusetts, but is yet to be um, adopted. And what that legislation uh, would would do is it would enable a personal representative, when someone's appointed, to deal with your online uh, resources and online um, access. Right now, there is no such thing in Massachusetts. So um, why I bring this up is so much of so many of us have um, our assets sort of online. And especially when I think about this for myself, I think about all the photos like that I have. So I, I'm thinking more about my photos, my online um, social media presence. I don't have a big one, but I do have one. Um, my email, um, those types of resources. Access to your financial um, accounts. I know that sometimes people will give over their passwords to their adult children, but actually that adult child is really not allowed to log in as you. Um, so I'm not, I'm not recommending that. That's really against the law. Um, I, even though I know it happens, it's sort of wink, wink, nod, nod, people do it, but it's really technically supposed to be you who's logging into that bank account. So I'm not talking about sort of your access to your financial information. That, that really has to happen properly under whatever the guidelines are for those different financial institutions. But what you can sometimes plan for in advance is things like your 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 photos like so every not every maybe 90% of the different online companies have some sort of legacy agreement that you can sign or you can name someone who can take control of of those assets for you so look into those things especially precious things like photos if you're anything like me you've almost transitioned completely to digital photography and i wouldn't want those to get lost I don't want those to, to go by the wayside when I die. I want there to be a way for that to pass on to my to my family so they can have those 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 treasured memories. Um, Google also has uh, a, an option for for some of this planning. So, again, maybe not a triggering probate type of comment, but something that we see a lot, especially the more and more of us that have online accounts look into wherever you have a different provider, if you do, to see what you can do to sort of add a trusted contact or someone that would be able to take over your account. I know Facebook has has something in this in this area. So just something to think about um, as you're sort of planning ahead um, for um, your future. Okay. And just sorry, just to back up quick on the car thing, someone asked about, wouldn't it go through the like the will if you just owned the car outright? It can't, you can definitely direct through the will who it's going to go to, but in order for that, for that to happen, someone would have to be appointed as the executor to, um, to transfer that title over. So where, again, this comes up is that for folks that have done a lot of planning and put and are trying to avoid probate altogether, this can pull it right back into probate. Um, so it will go to whoever you just, whoever you, direct your car to go to it will go there but um but it will have it will trigger a probate if it's anybody other than a surviving spouse and just just one more clarifying question so does that apply to anything listed in the will that doesn't have somebody else named yes okay so, so even so just for clarity purposes even though you have a will and you've listed these items it still could 
could go through probate. It's kind of like a perfect segue to talking about a little bit about estate planning. Now, like I said, when I began chatting, I'm not going to go into the um, the uh, what is an estate plan, the base of estate planning. I'm always happy to do that. And you can always reach out to me if you have any questions. But um, within the world of estate planning, um, where I spend a lot of my time, um, there are different approaches that planning can take. For those who have, a, I'm going to call like a will-based plan, where your will is really the main part of your plan. A lot of times when folks, um, clients come to me, they'll say, I just want the simplest thing. I just want the most basic thing. And that typically tends to be like a will where within the will designates wherever you want everything to go. It can be generally like, I just want my estate to be split between my children, or it can be very specific. Like I want my car to go to my nephew, my nephew, Ryan, that he's going to get the car. But if everything is, if, if I don't want to say if all you have is a will, because that's a very reasonable way about going about your planning. But if that's your, if that's the foundation of your plan, that will has to go through probate and a personal representative will be named in the will to carry out your wishes. And again, some folks like to avoid probate because it's public. Everyone will, who minds that information, that data, and people do, there are companies set up to do this, will know that Ryan is going to get that car um, or that your son is going to get half of your estate. And it's pretty easy to find out if you owned a house because it's, it's also all public information. So, you know, in the world we live in, um, where folks can sit at a computer and, you know, click away, you can get a lot of information online that's publicly available. So everything on the probate docket is publicly available and everything that in terms of the deed system, even if you have registered land, you still can look up someone's address and see how their property is titled. The, the, yeah. the other sort of track within estate planning that sometimes folks, um, when they learn more about it, opt for is, I'm going to call it a trust-based plan where they have a revocable living trust. Now, in the trust would have all those provisions. I want my car to go to Ryan. I want half of my estate to go to my one child and half to the other. And it may have other specific distributions as well. But everything that's in a trust is private. It doesn't ever go on the probate docket. Um, in that case, when someone opts for a trust-based plan, they'll have a will, they'll still need a will, but the will will simply say, hey, anything that's in my estate, pour over or put into my trust um, after I die. So if there's a income tax refund check, or if there's, say, say, that, say that person lived at one of those residential facilities, assisted living that has a refund, and they never added a beneficiary, and that check comes to the estate, the personal representative will take it and put it into the trust and then everything flows through the trust. So that's a quick sort of um, just touching on sort of different plans. But to answer the basic question is that if you have a will sort of as your foundation of your plan, um, it will go, it will have to go through probate to get the person appointed and then those, those gifts or bequests made. Okay. Um, okay. I'm sort of segueing now to just some general thoughts that are less practical, sort of more thoughtful things that you can also do now um, that can help your family a lot um, after you pass. So your funeral, your way, many, many of you, you know, not a lot of people, I should say, like to think about their funeral or what they'd like. Um, I can tell you, you know, my dad died unexpectedly. Um, he, you know, we hadn't had any conversations about what he wanted. He was 
uh, unmarried at the time, living on his own in Florida. And we had no idea, my brothers and I, what um, he would have wanted. We just was a conversation we didn't have. We ended up doing what we think he would have wanted. And um, it was, I think, beautiful and it felt okay to us. But I remember feeling a little badly that I didn't really know um, what he would want. Um, so if you do have an idea about that, if you have a song that you'd like to have sung, if you have a, you know, whether or not you want to be, whatever, whatever your wishes are, you can imagine what they may be. Leave instructions for your family and friends. Um, your paperwork. It all might make sense to you. You might know exactly where everything is at any given time. Um, but it's hard for family members sometimes to come into your office or your desk or wherever you keep stuff and try to make sense of it. So if there's a way of organizing it, making a list of, 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 of what you have or, or of what you own, you consider that. But, but one thing I want to mention about that, if you do make a list, and actually that sort of segues to the credit cards, et cetera, piece. If you make a list of your account numbers, say, to, to, to make sure that your adult child knows whatever it is you own, you don't have to list out the entire account number. So when I'm doing this um, for a client, I'll just list, you know, I'll put maybe XXX and the last four digits of that account. You don't really ever want a full list of everything you own with all your account numbers, PIN numbers, login, all in the same place. Just in case anyone were to, you know, if that, if that information was compromised, they would have everything they need, you know, to, to potentially commit fraud. So consider sort of how you make this list or how you organize things. But definitely try to make sense of it for your family if you can. It will help them a lot to be able to kind of navigate um, when you're not there to help them navigate. Um, communicate, sharing information, um, you know, with, with that can really promote family harmony. Uh, this is a hard thing for families to go through um, when you're no longer here. As you can imagine, if you've experienced it, you know. So the more that's clear and the more that's understood before you pass, um, the better. Um, where this comes up maybe most often is in that jointly owned account. Many folks, for, for convenience, eventually will add their adult child to a bank account um, so that it's a jointly owned account. You know, for some of the reasons why we already discussed, some of it's very practical. They want to be able to have that account be available to, the, to, the, to pay for their funeral or to pay for a celebration of their life or not have their child have to, you know, put out their own money for that. Sometimes, though, if it isn't clear to the family that that's really just for convenience, and unfortunately, I've seen this happen more than I'd, I'd like to share, um, that adult child becomes the sole owner of that account and decides that it was intended for them. Because they often are also the adult child who maybe is closest to the parent, physically close, maybe helping the parent get to appointments. And sometimes that can create some real family um, issues. So communicate, make sure everyone knows kind of what the plan is, how things are owned and how things are gonna go. And then of course, pets, most of you would already think about this, but just making plans for, if you have that beloved cat, cats, especially dogs, um, what's gonna happen after you after you pass. And I'm, I'm running shorter on time, but this is totally adjacent to, this is um, something that is more of a public service announcement because not everyone knows about most. Um, and I'm just mentioning it because when I was talking to um, someone about doing this uh, chat, they said, you know, the one thing I wish I had known about was most. And I, I mentioned it, you know, I, I, any, she said, anytime I'm talking to people about um, she, she went through the loss of her mother, she said, I, 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 want, I tell them this because it's a great tip. So I thought I'd include it in my comments today. 
So this is not a legal document. So, and, and of course, and I'm a lawyer, so I probably shouldn't be talking about anything that's not in my lane, but it's very adjacent. And I just want to make you aware of it. And there's a great website over here, moles-mass.org. And what it is, is it's medical orders for life-sustaining treatment. So it's giving persons with an advanced illness. This isn't something you do until you already have an advanced illness. It's a process for making their decisions regarding life-sustaining treatments known, communicated, and then honored. And it's honored, this document is honored across all healthcare settings in Massachusetts. It's something that you create with your doctor. So just to be clear, it's a medical document. Patients of any age can do it that have an advanced illness. It contains the current medical orders about life-sustaining treatments. It's signed by the patient and their clinician, and, and it's effective immediate upon signing. It's not a healthcare proxy. If I was given a different talk about state planning basics, we'd be talking about healthcare proxies. That's a legal document. And that's many of you are maybe are familiar with what healthcare proxies do and why we have them. They're important too. I just wanted to make a mention of this because someone mentioned it to me and I thought it was a good idea. Um, just so you know. Okay. Is that something though they would still do with their attorney or do they no, go to this website and do don't. it on their own? And yep. okay. They do it with their doctor. Okay. Yep. Not with an attorney. Thank you. That's a really important distinction. Yeah, it's very much adjacent to the work that I do, but because it does come up and because I think it can be very helpful in certain situations. I just want to make mention of it because I don't know how well known it is um, out there. Okay, summary. Um, just in sum, I hope you found this helpful. My intention was to just give me you know, raise a little bit of awareness around a couple of small, tiny bits that can kind of become a snag um, for, for you to be aware of stuff that I see when I'm helping a family navigate after the loss of a loved one that can be frustrating or extra administrative that with a few thoughts in advance could make a difference for your family. So um, happy to stay around for any questions or comments, feedback. Also just want to make myself available. Um, my, my information will be here at the, at the, at the end. Feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. Um, but one one piece I'll say, um, if this or any time along the way you're triggered to thinking about um, thinking about your estate plan or rethinking it, make sure that whoever you work with does a good job of explaining things and educating you. And do not be afraid to ask questions. That's one of the most important things um, that I try to facilitate in my work with clients. This stuff can be very confusing. The world of trust can be. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I think folks, it's hard to sometimes understand exactly how they work. So work with someone that you feel comfortable enough to ask questions. Make sure that you understand it before you sign it. Um, and and that, that's a good counselor who's going to do that for you. So And there are lots of them in Lexington. There are lots of good estate plan and, and in the area around. Lots of good estate planning attorneys that can help you with that. Um, so I will conclude there. And There's just a couple, a couple of um, questions in the chat before we conclude, conclude. Someone asked, is it my understanding that any most can be ignored at any time by doctors? That is not my understanding. Uh, my understanding is that it is a medical document that is um, communicated and honored across all healthcare settings. I don't know if someone's had, if that's a personal experience that they've had or heard about. I have not heard that. But again, the most is a, it's an adjacent comment. It's not a. It's not in my realm as a. It's not a legal document, um, okay. as opposed to a healthcare proxy. 
um, my understanding is that it is it is very um, reliable to be able to, but I'm not sure if that person has had a different experience or has heard that. Okay. Um, and then someone asked about, again, is the mold something you would do before you have a major surgery? No, that's more of a healthcare proxy document. Okay. So the okay. most is really for someone with an advanced illness, so okay. chronic or advanced illness, and they want to work with their clinician to make their decisions regarding life-sustaining treatments known. Yeah. A healthcare so proxy, not, they they want, so, like, but, but you know, the, the scenario about if someone is, if you're going to be going in for a procedure and um, you want to make sure your sort of ducks are in, in a row, um, definitely make sure you have an updated healthcare proxy. And that I can talk to. That is a legal document. Um, and anyone over age 18 really should have one. And even if you, if anybody on this call has a, or in this webinar has a child over 18, I also recommend that you consider getting it for that uh, adult child. Um, I call them adult child. Does that make sense? Young adult. Let's call it that. Any young adult in your life. And what that is, is you're naming, you're appointing uh, your proxy who can make a decision on your behalf if you're unable to. So it only kicks in a healthcare proxy, the legal document that is here below my uh, cursor. Um, if, if, if something goes wrong during the surgery and you're not conscious and the doctor needs to make a decision by the healthcare proxy document, you've designated who is going to make that decision on your behalf. Um, and the way the document works is you have one agent and then you have a backup. Um, and this is something that any competent lawyer can create. But I'll also make a mention of something to you all that, that if you're going into surgery tomorrow and you don't have time to see a lawyer, most hospitals, and this actually happened for, for me. Um, it was uh, uh, not long after uh, my divorce, I um, uh, hadn't updated my healthcare proxy um, and I was going in for a procedure and I realized it literally in like the pre-op, the day before when you go and you get the blood work done. Well, right there at Leahy Clinic, they had a simple form. Now, it wasn't as probably robust as the ones I draft here or another lawyer would do for you, but I was able to designate um, a, an agent and a backup. And they had a couple people right there come in and witness my signature um, because it is, a, it is a witnessed and typically notarized document. So if you find yourself heading into the um, having that procedure and you're not sure if you have your healthcare proxy or if they, they often can do a very simple one for you. At, at, at hospitals or in these clinics. So I'll just mention that. That actually is a true story of my own. I now have one that's, you know, six pages long. But at the time, I was really glad that I could get that done um, right before I went and had that procedure. Do you suggest and, sharing your healthcare proxy with your doctor? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Yep. We will, whenever whenever our clients request it, we'll fax it to our, our, uh, our um, doctor's office. The reason for that is this is an interesting statistic, and it was a study done by the American Medical Association, and it's like, it's kind of a crazy number. I think it's something 80%, and this was done a while ago. This could, this might be, this is, this study is about six years old. Um, there are folks that do put these healthcare directives in place, a healthcare proxy, and then when the time comes, can't be, no one knows where it is, can't find it. Um, so what can you do about that? A couple things. One is you can, um, facts or give a copy of your healthcare proxy to your primary care physician. The other one is there are a number of places we do it for some of our clients where you can get an emergency medical information card. 
where there's a 1-800 number on the back and you can call, the first responder can call and get a copy of your healthcare proxy. I'm sure there are other, other law firms that do that. Um, or maybe there's other third-party places you can get that done. But it's always a good idea that your, your agent or your spouse or your best friend you know, has a copy of your healthcare proxy. Um, that's something that it doesn't have a lot of private information on it. It's a good idea to share it if you have one. Um, and also make sure the person you've designated is aware that they're designated and is, is comfortable in that position on your behalf. Um, again, most often it can be a spouse. Sometimes it's an adult child as maybe sometimes as the alternate. So healthcare proxy with that, those person's name and their cell phone. Thank you. Well, thank you all so much for joining. Um, again, we do this to just bring resources and information to everyone in our community. And if you have any friends or people that we might be able to help, feel free to pass them our way. Uh, just a quick reminder that January 9th will be our next Empower Women series. You can check out um, the website to get some information on that event. And um, other than that, just want to wish everyone a happy holiday season. And we will see you all in the new year. Thank you very much. Thanks, all. Happy Thank new you. year. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To listen to past podcast episodes and to see our calendar of upcoming events, visit our website, empower-women.com. Hightower Advisors LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material is not intended or written to provide and should not be relied upon or used as a substitute for tax or legal advice. Information contained herein does not consider an individual's or entity-specific circumstances or applicable governing law, which may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and be subject to change. Clients are urged to consult with their tax or legal advisor for related questions.